Content note, today's episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains a fair amount of reference to death and injury and extreme greed and profiteering. And we mentioned a little bit about the bigotry and stigma that is faced by mental health. We speculated a little bit on the mental health of some of the characters, but didn't want to, not to go into too much depth. If that's something you're uncomfortable with, please be aware. And yeah. Hey folks, Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Please join us as we continue with Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Chapter 24, Milo. Just Milo. Milo. Milo is amusing and disturbing all in one go. Wheeling and dealing. Technically yeah. not stealing. I have to wonder, like, the, the previous Milo chapter was called Milo the Mayor, and that was, you know, looking over all his uh, wheelings and dealings, as you put it. With this chapter just being called Milo, I wonder if this is the chapter we're getting backstory on the man. Maybe. I don't know, there's something, maybe we get more of the emotional or the motivation behind this character, but it's he's an oddball, that's for sure. There's actually something funny about Milo that I think will be more amusing as we read into it, because like, I can see the first paragraph of the chapter. <laughs> there's a reference of food. And I mean, Milo, a lot of, he's a, he's a mess officer, yeah, for, for that squadron. But he's also, basically, a lot of his focus is, I mean, aside from the cotton and other things, a lot of his stuff is food-related. The mm. syndicate deals a lot in food and produce. And what's funny to me, as 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 I, uh, I am sure it is to many of the Australians, is the fact that someone is a character named Milo, who runs a syndicate that predominantly deals with food, given his name, is the name of a product in Australia, which is essentially a chocolate malt milk. Run by a syndicate. <laughs> Run by a syndicate. <laughs> I think it's Nestle. I want to say it's Nestle. But uh, we are not yeah. sponsored by Nestle. But yes, <laughs> Nestle has its own issues that we will not go into right now. Yeah, but, uh, I've never been a huge fan of the malted beverage. Uh, I know my buddy Kenneth absolutely loves Milo. It's a very Australian thing. Or, or maybe he's an old teen man. He, he'd probably, if he listens to the podcast, he'd probably yell at me for that one. <laughs> but um actually i don't mind maltesers they're um they're a malty, malty chocolate malty, we have malty. but with milo um it's uh it i know that we used to have a milo ice cream i'm sure we still do i am lactose intolerant uh so i wouldn't know i think dave you also wouldn't really know yeah the, we're starting now to get a couple lactose free ice creams in the freezer section, but the it, it's basically like ten years ago when the um, milk alternatives just started making their way, and there's still not yeah, a lot of so choice. And I imagine like the early uh, lactose free milk days, uh, many of them are not great. Mm, yeah, no, no, they're pretty terrible. There's a lot of coconut ones, and I, I'm I'm all all power to you if you enjoy those things, but. I I do not. Mm. I've just kind of taken to eating the occasional frozen banana that's smushed up. 
Man, I remember in my because tw- in my twenties was when we would hang out at Starbucks all the time, and yes. back then there were not the options. And funnily enough, at least in this country, Starbucks was one of the last coffee shops to actually introduce many lactose-free options. Yeah. The only one they ever had was soy. Now I think hot soy milk tastes like garbage. That that's my personal opinion on the matter. It was terrible. I. P- Actually, I wouldn't put up with it. I would have like a regular mocha and then feel sick. Um, of yeah. course, with a with a frappuccino with a cold drink, it worked. But I think just those things were so full of sugar that it just masked the awful taste of the soy milk. The yeah, yeah, yeah. So Starbucks had an interesting time settling into Australia, but that's a whole discussion where they just tried to bring. Bring a brand and a way of doing things into a country that has its own established coffee culture. That, well, that did that, not go that's well it. for them. Uh, Australia is, by and large, a has a cafe culture. Mm-hmm. We have a yeah. So that that was an interesting kind of. So it, we, it's fun to watch. Fun we to do we do have like we even not only do we have Starbucks, we have our own like local coffee chains, like big chains that you can find everywhere. There's Zarafas, there's Gloria mm. Jeans, there's the Coffee Club. But by and large, like myself and I'm sure many others, most of the time we go to like our local cafe that's usually uh, run by a family or yeah. you know someone who well at least the person who runs the one on our corner they've been working in food their whole lives it, it sounds like they own quite a few restaurants so they're more restaurateurs than just like but it is still like a locally owned they cook most yeah. of the stuff Independent themselves and yeah. um it's quite good yeah i think uh, yeah it, 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 and this does tie back into milo actually oddly enough so you've got like Milo from our previous chapters, he's he uses or he is aware of the cultural context in which he is navigating and he organizes his business and trade to match the culture that he is engaging in. So the fact that he is in what's it called? Gibraltar, thank you. So, uh, so for example, the way that he he's in Gibraltar, he held, holds a certain position in in uh, Oman. He has a position in Iran, whatever. All these different places that he has his own position that is adapted to the local culture and custom. Well, he also seems to have adapted whatever deception he needed to get that position. That's what I mean. Like that's he's he's looked at the local space and gone what can what do I need to do in order for me to succeed here with the syndicate and place myself in a position where I can trade and and take control of the local resources. So it's it's fascinating to see, but the same way not not saying that coffee culture in Australia is like Milo, but the same thing that you need to know you need to go beyond market research. You need to actually it's it's not good enough to say okay, Australians consume X many liters or spend this much on coffee or whatever a year. It's like you need to actually find out like how are they ordering it? Are people loyal to their own the, their space? How do they have it prepared? What is the qualitative stuff? So the idea that quantitative information, just knowing that Egypt has cotton and it's at this price, is not enough. You need to know Egypt has cotton at this price. This is how they prepare it. This is how it works. In And in X country, it is of 
value is more valuable in that place because they don't have access to cotton that easily. And therefore, but cotton, if you went and you tried and sell cotton to a place that doesn't use cotton, well, that's not going to work. Because, yeah, wasn't the Egyptian cotton that was the one he got burned on? Yeah, he got burned on it because the thing is, I'm sure that he was thinking in terms of injuries that it's important because cotton bandages and stuff. But the thing is, you don't need to have Egyptian cotton specifically in order to create a bandage. Um, I don't know. We haven't read that part of the story. We'll probably find out more about it. But it's like if you if you try and sell the whole idea of selling, I don't know, if you go and you want to sell apples to a country that has had a bumper crop of apples, that's not going to make any sense. Yeah. So sell, Selling ice in Antarctica. Yes, it makes, well, I mean... We say this, but now, hmm, let's not talk about the recent reports on global climate change. Thank you. Well, let's not. Let's not. But, but, but you know, that, that's, that's an old joke about how, how good a salesman was if he could sell ice to that, that group of people who I'm not going to name. No, because that in itself is a slur. <laughs> so, yeah, selling ice to people who inhabit areas of high ice content is an indicator of someone who's a good salesperson, or I would say someone who's incredibly high gift of the gab and very low ethical moral character. Coming back to Milo. Back to Milo. Yes. Speaking of low ethics and poor morals, weak morals fiber, Milo. And yeah, but, but he appreciates Yosarian's honesty. He appreciates. He just, he, he just wishes Yosarian would be less honest. <laughs> yeah, that, the thing about his interactions with Yosarian, I can't tell if Milo actually appreciates him, or is wants him gone. Like or he's if, trying to butter him up. You think? I don't think he can butter him up, and I think Milo knows that. He, can, you can confuse him, but you can't butter him up because he'll just say the thing. That's why when 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 Viserion used to get the, was getting the crate of fruit delivered and and Milo's like but you could do this and he's like no I want to give it away I said yeah but you could sell it if you wanted to he's like well people can take it and sell it if they want to but no no you could sell it if you wanted to it's your fruit it's like look nah look I'll give it away and if you want to sell it, like kind of but that idea of he himself it's almost like Viserion a doesn't see the point in making a profit off the profit himself well well, yeah i think we talked about this it was the i think it was the chapter with yossarian being called honest by mala where you know we've seen yossarian take some very dubious actions uh, usually in for his own self-preservation or um sometimes it seems he's being cruel or needlessly needling someone but for the most part it seems he it might be a strange set of ethics, but he does seem to have a moral framework that guides him. Mm, mm, mm. It's just, he has his, yeah, but it, it's a bit funny. And I think it's probably going to depend on what what time we are meeting Yossarian. So when, mm. what Yossarian has been through and what has happened to him. Yeah, you, 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 you did bring that up where like, because I believe the earliest we've seen him now uh, it was either during that uh, chapter with Clevenger and Lieutenant Shyskoff, or it was his first trip to the hospital when he was pretending to be the dead kid for the family. I think one of those is our earliest point so far. Or maybe it was when he was talking to 
what was his name? The the ex PFC Wintergreen when he was still digging the holes over in the U.S. Yeah, possibly. But but what? But, but like the idea that one of those three, the the times we met him early on, he did seem to be more more adhering to whatever code he had. You know, he was the man who told Clevenger, "You need to shut up and keep your head down. Your your idealism is just going to get you in trouble." And then I guess after so many missions, he's just like, "Look, I don't care what anyone else thinks of me anymore." Yeah, he's, 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 uh, how do you put it? He's hit that point where he, he, he's given up. He tries to speak up and protect people, but it doesn't get anything done. And I mean, you had the whole thing with Arfie and the endangerment. And then you had, was it, I'm trying to remember who it was that caused the, the incident to begin with. So here it is. This is where it literally says that was the mission on which Cesarian lost his nerve. He lost his nerve on the mission to Avignon because Snowden lost his guts. And Snowden lost his guts because their pilot that day was Hubble, who was 15 years old, their co-pilot was Dobbs, and who was even worse and wanted Cesarian to join with him. in a. So that whole Dobbs is the between Dobbs losing it and causing the death and i think that idea of self-preservation probably started earlier it did because he didn't want us to join the war because he the when he signed up it was when he thought that he would not see combat mm. so he can be dishonest but i think his need for self-preservation really kicks into super high gear after avignon it's hard for me to say it because i don't quite believe it but do you think he lost his mind at some point who um Yasarian. Yeah, cuz you know after the after the Ferrera mission for example, he was naked for a while. I think he's not well and I think he is he is actually desperately unwell. But the way that the system works as Danica put it was that if you think you're not well and you come to us and you say that you're not well, then we have to. Then you're not obviously not well because you're well enough to recognize that you're not well. You know, as as uh, yourself being someone who has had to deal with uh, a lot of medical uh, BS, yeah. um, it's it's that that's almost like the ultimate not believing the patient, eh? Uh, it's it's bad because the logic of when it comes to mental health. The association, the idea of, of mental health or mental illness or lack of ability to be responsible for your own well-being or whatever, that's they're tied together very closely. So the idea that you can be a person who has anxiety or has moments, has certain triggers of anxiety, but you can generally function and you know how to create the circumstances in which to function, i.e. accommodations... Hmm. But by separating mental health from physical health or mental disabilities from physical disabilities in the sense of emotional, mental, not in terms of uh, learning difficulties and brain damage and other things, when you separate the two, you create an unnatural split. If you treat everything as disability, it just becomes a matter of accommodation and and supportive management. The problem is that with the system, our systems are all designed to disempower and control. 
Hmm. And so you have, in particularly, I mean, this is not universal, it's not all the time, not everyone's going to have this experience, disclaimer, disclaimer. But generally the way things are designed, they're not, des- they're not designed to, there's a lot of paternalism, there's a lot of, hey, well, the doctor knows best. Hmm. But the doctor says you're being hysterical, you're probably being hysterical. And then you also train yourself to believe that, oh, what I, that pain I have in my chest mustn't be a real issue. Must just be nothing. Like you, you, you. The 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 line between mental and physical health is extremely blurred. And usually, mental health diagnoses, for example, will cause your physical health to be dismissed or ignored, which is a mess. And a lot of physical things are dismissed as purely mental things, as opposed to having an organic cause. So it's 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 messy. It's tangled. It's nasty. So if, for example, Yasarian has some sort of head injury. And there's something going on or has had severe trauma, which, hey, he's in combat. He's in war. The fact that he's had trauma, highly likely. And but is is able enough to recognize, hey, this is this is not like I can't do this anymore. This isn't right. This isn't fair. It's we we're, it's easy to turn around and point at the system and say the system is at fault. So the system is so, so in terms of Yasser, and he points around and says everyone else is crazy. But is it really like? But is he really crazy? And I, I know I'm using the word the c word here, but it's it's just easier than explaining. Like is is he actually not being realistic? Is he being irrational, or is he correct? And he, we've said this before. He's not wrong that everyone is trying to kill him. Of course they are, because for one group, they're trying to kill you because, quote, unquote, you're the enemy. And the other one, you you are expendable. You are fodder. The conversation that was in the previous chapter with Nately's, um, with the old man in, in with Nately, it was kind of pointing that out as well. It's like, it's... If you are willing to die, like if you're willing to die for something, then you should be willing to live for something. Mm. <laughs> so it's it's you can see that this is I think Catch Twenty Two the way that he does this is really challenges you to think. Yeah, the, is it is it truly worth it? Are people who need to like is it uh, when we're sending people off to combat? Are we? Um, do we there, there's it, there, it's that kind of um sorry catch me too. it's the hypocrisy of saying that you're sending people out there and you care about them like they go, get to go to hospital they get to have medical care there there are procedures and ways to if something is not right you can just report it to your superior officer blah 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 but your superior officer has their own agenda and every their own single policy. one in this book does definitely. in this book yeah Again, I can't speak from experience of combat, obviously, but it, it's it's a system that is there to to protect the rights of your nation or your world or to free a certain population or whatever. But at the same time, the the per, the comp the structure and the way that it works is there to it, like it chews up and spits out the the cannon fodder, so to speak. Hmm. And you're going. That's why I look back at Yusarian and I go, I understand that he's probably not well, but I don't think anyone in that situation is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone in that particular squadron and the way things are being run is. 
and and kind of um, paradoxically, like the the one that's most okay about this would be Habermeyer because he signed up in order to kill people, so he's arguably one of the sickest there. Yes, and and I think the the um, the question is: Are they the way they are because of where they are, or are they the way they are? Because that's what they've been selected for. The system has selected them for the, it's like auto selects for that. Hmm. So, in terms of also who gets promoted and who doesn't, like we had the the general who is like he ta- he's frustrated that he hasn't advanced with his career because he's done all the right things by the military by the book, and now he's just um, like he almost like the fact that he told them to to he kicked out the briefing officer from mm-hmm. the briefing what and then they're surprised that avignon was basically a disaster mm. things like that so it's 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 the whole thing is chaotic and not making sense but unless you view it from a lens of its ambition its greed its ego and nothing of it is about the people that are there and and i've said this before where in an ideal system you think Every one of those officers up the chain with their level of power and responsibility would have the skills and the knowledge to mm. be able to make this all run well. But but the kind part of the, the cosmic joke of this book is that none of them have of them. that at all. No. no. Like like that old um that old saying what the, the, the monkeys are running the asylum? It's it's just it's not. It's uh, the not, the inmates are running the asylum. I think if the inmates ran the asylums, they'd they'd do better. Hypothetically, I think it's worse because there's a there's a control issue as well. Like we don't care how you get the job done, just get the job done and make us look good. Make us look good. Yeah, the rest is whatevs. And you've got like I feel really bad for Yusarian in the sense that. He's, he's the way his, I don't know whether it's just the way we discuss this. We don't know if it's because that's the way his mind has always been or that's what happened to his mind in the way he's navigating, the space that he's navigating and mm. the losses and the, the experiences that he's he's had. When he was back in the, um, the first time he went to the hospital and like where he had to, well, the first time, but the first couple of times where they're like, well, we don't think anything's actually, like, I know nothing's wrong with you, but you're just here to avoid things. So as a deal, do this, and um, yeah, there's there's so many layers in this book, and so many ways you can can look at it and go. It's the dehumanizing. It's the the dehumanizing of the people who are actually putting themselves in danger. The system d- is designed to to just treat them as a number. And it also seems, and I'm going to extrapolate further up the food chain in terms of like the political structure of the U.S., not just its military branch, but it is incentivizes aberrant behavior. Well, it in, yes, it incentivizes dehumanizing and and traits. And I, I know there are going to be people who argue, oh, but it's a peak human condition too fight for resources or it's a peak human thing too but i would argue that animals do that too 
So what differentiates humans from animals is the fact that we can choose to work around or work past these things. We choose to work together, like collaborate, not saying that animals don't work together. I'm sure they do, and they do. Definitely, they're examples of it. But the difference is they're working together for material survival, whereas we actually can and are capable of working towards generations that don't exist yet. Thinking far, for the idea of legacy, the concept of legacy, the fact mm. that Shakespeare wrote, and yes, he wrote for his immediate audience, yes, but the thing is that he wrote, wrote in such a way that he has left a legacy and he's left an influence on others. That concept of legacy, it, it kind of evolved over time. It didn't exist straight away. So anyway, I've, been, I've been reading way too many books on the idea of the individual and the concept of the individual and how that changed and shifted. And yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it is, it does, the fact that I think in Catch-22, Heller has put so much effort into describing these characters, their idiosyncrasies, their behavior, their interactions, all this, and he's tried to really, really point out that these are people. Yeah, um, a good example, actually, uh, it's happened with Cathcart, has it happened with Clevenger, where once we get an in-depth description of who these people actually are it's not that i excuse their previous behavior but i understand it and i i in the case of those two examples i have sympathy for them yeah like kathcart may be an absolutely awful colonel like every, every decision he makes is not conducive to the war effort or even to his own men mm. but it's all about him yeah there is a sympathy we're just um, even though he is so, so self-serving, he's not able to enjoy a moment of it. He is mm. so twisted up inside yeah. uh, that that he is basically in perpetual torment. And it's it's also what they get taught that they have to be. That there exists. If your existence only exists, we touching a little bit on what we talked about last episode if your existence is only for yourself and only for yourself to be self-serving, then of course you're going to constantly look around and look at what's detracting, what other people are doing to detract you from mm. your outcome Yeah, that you want. And then not a moment to, yeah, not a moment, not a single moment. But yes, so Milo, speaking of self-serving. Yeah, I think Oh no, it's... but he's self-serving for the syndicate, remember? Everyone in the syndicate gets a share. Yes. <laughs> um, but the share we need to dish out now is to read the chapter yes, and see yes. what exactly Milo's deal may be. Mm -hmm. If we find it out. If we do. Chapter 24, Milo. April had been the best month of all for Milo. Lilacs bloomed in April, and fruit ripened on the vine. Heartbeats quickened and old appetites were renewed. In April, a livelier iris gleamed upon the burnished dove. April was spring, and in the spring, Milo Minderbinder's fancy had lightly turned to thoughts of tangerines. Tangerines? Yes, sir. My men would love tangerines, admitted the colonel in Sardinia, who commanded four squadrons of B-26s. There'll be all the tangerines they can eat that you're able to pay for with money from your mess fund, Milo assured him. Cassava melons are going for a song in Damascus. I have a weakness for cassava melons. 
I've always had a weakness for cassava melons. Just lend me one plane from each squadron, just one plane, and you'll have all the cassavas you can eat that you've money to pay for. We buy from the syndicate, and everybody has a share. It's amazing, positively amazing. How can you do it? Mass purchasing power makes the big difference. For example, breaded veal cutlets. I'm not so crazy about breaded veal cutlets, grumbled the skeptical B-25 commander in the north of Corsica. Breaded veal cutlets are very nutritious, Milo admonished him piously. They contain egg yolk and breadcrumbs, and so are lamb chops. Ah, lamb chops, echoed the B-25 commander. Good lamb chops? The best, said Milo, that the black market has to offer. Baby lamb chops? In the cutest little pink paper panties you ever saw, are going for a song in Portugal. I can't send a plane to Portugal. I haven't the authority. I can, once you lend the plane to me, with a pilot to fly it. And don't forget, you'll get General Dreedle. Will General Dreedle eat in my mess hall again? Like a pig, once you start feeding him my best white fresh eggs fried in my pure creamery butter. There'll be tangerines, too, and cassava melons, honeydews, filet of Dover sole, baked Alaska, and cockles and mussels. And everybody has a share? That, said Milo, is the most beautiful part of it. I don't like it, growled the uncooperative fighter plane commander, who didn't like Milo either. There's an uncooperative fighter plane commander up north who's got it in for me, Milo complained to General Dreedle. It takes just one person to ruin the whole thing, and then you wouldn't have your fresh eggs fried in my pure creamery butter anymore. General Dreedle had the uncooperative fighter plane commander transferred to the Solomon Islands to dig graves and replaced him with a senile colonel with bursitis and a craving for lychee nuts who introduced Milo to the B-17 general on the mainland with a yearning for Polish sausage. Polish sausage is going for peanuts in Krakow, Milo informed him. Polish sausage, sighed the general nostalgically. You know, I'd give just about anything for a good hunk of Polish sausage. Just about anything. You don't have to give anything. Just give me one plane for each mess hall and a pilot who will do what he's told. And a small down payment on your initial order as a token of good faith. But Krakow is hundreds of miles behind the enemy lines. How will we get to the sausage? There's an international Polish sausage exchange in Geneva. I'll just fly the peanuts into Switzerland and exchange them for Polish sausage at the open market rate. They'll fly the peanuts back to cacao, and I'll fly the Polish sausage back to you. You buy only as much Polish sausage as you want through the syndicate. There'll be tangerines too, with only a little artificial coloring added, and eggs from Malta and scotch from Sicily. You'll be paying the money to yourself when you buy from the syndicate, since you'll own a share, so you'll really be getting everything you buy for nothing. Doesn't that make sense? Sheer genius! How in the world did you ever think of it? My name is Milo Minderbinder. I am 27 years old. Milo Minderbinder's planes flew in from everywhere. The pursuit planes, bombers, and cargo ships streaming into Colonel Cathcart's field with pilots at the controls who would do what they were told. The planes were decorated with flamboyant squadron emblems illustrating such laudable ideals as courage, might, justice, truth, liberty, love, honor, and patriotism that were painted out at once by Milo's mechanics with a double coat of flat white and replaced in garish purple with the stencil name M&M Enterprises, Fine Fruits and Produce. The M&M in M&M Enterprises stood for Milo and Minderbinder, and the and was inserted. Milo revealed candidly to nullify any impression that the syndicate was a one-man operation. <laughs>
Except it is. But yes. Planes arrived from Milo from airfields in Italy, North Africa, and England, and from air transport command stations in Liberia, Ascension Island, Cairo, and Karachi. Pursuit planes were traded for additional cargo ships or retained for emergency invoice duty and small parcel service. Trucks and tanks were procured from the Grand Forces and used for short-distance road hauling. Everybody had a share, and men got fat and moved about tamely with toothpicks in their greasy lips. Milo supervised the whole expanding operation by himself. Deep otter-brown lines of preoccupation etched themselves permanently into his careworn face and gave him a harried look of sobriety and mistrust. Everybody but Yesarian thought Milo was a jerk. First for volunteering for the job of mess officer, and next for taking it so seriously. Yossarian also thought that Milo was a jerk, but he also knew that Milo was a genius. One day Milo flew away to England to pick up a load of Turkish halva and came flying back from Madagascar, leaving four German bombers filled with yams, collards, mustard greens, and black-eyed Georgia peas. Milo was dumbfounded when he stepped onto the ground and found a contingent of armed MPs waiting to imprison the German pilots and confiscate their planes. Confiscate? The mere word was anathema to him, and he stormed back and forth in excoriating condemnation, shaking a piercing finger of rebuke in the guilt-ridden faces of Colonel Cathcart, Colonel Korn, and the poor battle-scarred captain with the submachine gun who commanded the MPs. Is this Russia? Milo assailed them incredulously at the top of his voice. Confiscate, he shrieked as though he could not believe his own ears, since when is it the policy of the American government to confiscate the private property of its citizens? Shame on you. Shame on all of you for even thinking such a horrible thought. But Milo, Major Danby interrupted timidly, we're at war with Germany, and those are German planes. They are no such thing, Milo retorted furiously. Those planes belong to the syndicate, and everybody has a share confiscate? How can you possibly confiscate your own private property? Confiscate indeed. I've never heard anything so depraved in my whole life. And sure enough, Milo was right, for when they looked, his mechanics had painted out the German swastikas on the wings, tails, and fuselages with double coats of flat white and stenciled in the words M&M &M Enterprises, fine fruits and produce. Right before their eyes, he had transformed his syndicate into an international cartel. Milo's argosies of plenty now filled the air. Planes poured in from Norway, Denmark, France, Germany, Austria, Italy, Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, Sweden, Finland, Poland, from everywhere in Europe, in fact, but Russia, with whom Milo refused to do business. When everybody who was going to had signed up with M&M &M Enterprises, fine fruits and produce, Milo created a wholly owned subsidiary, M&M &M Fancy Pastry, and obtained more airplanes and more money from the mess funds for scones and crumpets from the British Isles, prune and cheese Danish from Copenhagen, eclairs, cream puffs, napoleons and petit four from Paris, reams and Grenoble, Kugelhopf, pumpernickel, and Pfefferkuchen from Berlin, Linzer and Dobus Torten from Vienna, Strudel from Hungary, and Baklava from Ankara. Each morning, Milo sent planes aloft all over Europe and North Africa, hauling along red tow signs, advertising the day specials in large square letters. Eyebound, 79 cents. Whiting, 21 cents. He boosted cash income for the syndicate by leasing tow signs to Pet Milk, Gaines Dog Food, and Noxima. In a spirit of civic enterprise, 
he regularly allotted a certain amount of free aerial advertising space to General Peckham for the propagation of such messages in the public interest as neatness counts, haste makes waste, and the family that prays together stays together. My Milo purchased spot radio announcements on Axis Sally's and Lord Ha Ha's daily propaganda broadcasts from Berlin to keep things moving. Business boomed on every battlefront. Milo's planes were a familiar sight. They had freedom of passage everywhere, and one day Milo contracted with the American military authorities to bomb the German-held highway bridge at Orvieto and with the German military authorities to defend the highway bridge at Orvieto with anti-aircraft fire against his own attack. His fee for attacking the bridge for America was the total cost of the operation, plus 6%, and his fee from Germany for defending the bridge was the same cost plus 6 agreement augmented by a merit bonus of $1,000 for every American plane he shot down. The consummation of these deals represented an important victory for private enterprise, he pointed out, since the armies of both countries were socialized institutions. Once the contracts were signed, there seemed to be no point in using the resources of the syndicate to bomb and defend the bridge, inasmuch as both governments had ample men and material right there to do so, and were perfectly happy to contribute them. And in the end, Milo realized a fantastic profit from both halves of his project for doing nothing more than signing his name twice. The arrangements were fair to both sides. Since Milo did have freedom of passage everywhere, his planes were able to steal over in a sneak attack without alerting the German anti-aircraft gunners, and since Milo knew about the attack, he was able to alert the German anti-aircraft gunners in sufficient time for them to begin firing accurately the moment the planes came into range. It was an ideal arrangement for everyone but the dead man in the Assyrian's tent who was killed over the target the day he arrived. Okay, Let, okay. His planes were able to go across without getting gunned down, but because Milo knew about the sneak attacks. Uh, okay, yep, yep, okay. He, he's basically just found a way to inform and profit from both sides of a military operation. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, I believe we found out about this a long time ago. There was an off comment about Orvieto being the... Um, being the operation where Milo had uh, paid the Germans off. Yeah. And vice versa. It's very confusing, but yes. And obviously this is the one where the, the man in the Assyrian's tent lost his life. Mm. The man who didn't exist. <laughs> well, not according to the army, no. <clears throat> and he got money for every plane that was American that's shot down. That's just, ugh. Yep. But everyone profits because everyone's got a share in the syndicate. Yeah, it, it was a uh, triumph for private enterprise. And because uh, I, I like that very cynical take, it's like, look, uh, because both sides are social programs and they've got the men and the resources and they actually want to do this, the syndicate really has nothing to contribute. Why? We'll just let them do it and take the profit. Dodgy. Yeah. Very. I didn't kill him, Milo kept replying passionately to Yesterian's angry protest. I wasn't even there that day, I tell you. Do you think I was down there on the ground firing an anti-aircraft gun when the planes came over? But you organized the whole thing, didn't you? 
Yasserian shouted back at him in the velvet darkness, cloaking the path leading past the still vehicles of the motor pool to the open-air movie theater. And I didn't organize anything, Milo answered indignantly, drawing great agitated sniffs of air in through his hissing, pale, twitching nose. The Germans have the bridge, and we were going to bomb it. Whether I stepped into the picture or not, I just saw a wonderful opportunity to make some profit out of the mission, and I took it. What's so terrible about that? What's so terrible about it? Milo, a man in my tent was killed on that mission before he could even unpack his bags. But I didn't kill him. You got a thousand dollars extra for it. But I didn't kill him. I wasn't even there. I tell you, I was in Barcelona buying olive oil and skinless and boneless sardines, and I've got the purchase orders to prove it, and I didn't get the thousand dollars. That thousand dollars went to the syndicate, and everybody got a share. Even you. Milo was appealing to Yesarian from the bottom of his soul. Look, I didn't start this war, Yesarian, no matter what that lousy wintergreen is saying. <laughs> I want to know more about that. I'm just trying to put it on a business-like basis. Is anything wrong with that? You know, a thousand dollars ain't such a bad price for a medium bomber and a crew. If I can persuade the Germans to pay me a thousand dollars for every plane they shoot down, why shouldn't I take it? Because you're dealing with the enemy, that's why. Can't you understand that we're fighting a war? People are dying. Look around you, for Christ's sake. Milo shook his head with wary forbearance. And the Germans are not our enemies, he declared. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Sure, we're at war with them. But the Germans are also members in good standing of the syndicate. And it's my job to protect their rights as shareholders. Maybe they did start the war. And maybe they are killing millions of people, but they pay their bills a lot more promptly than some allies of ours I could name. Don't you understand that I have to respect the sanctity of my contract with Germany? Can't you see it from my point of view? No, Yasserian rebuffed him harshly. Milo was stung and made no effort to disguise his wounded feelings. It was a muggy, moonlit night filled with gnats, moths, and mosquitoes. Milo lifted his arm suddenly and pointed towards the open-air theater, where the milky, dust-filled beam bursting horizontally from the projector slashed a cone-like swath in the blackness and draped in a fluorescent membrane of light, the audience tilted on the seats there in hypnotic sags, their faces focused upward toward the aluminized movie screen. Milo's eyes were liquid with integrity, and his artless and uncorrupted face was lustrous with a shining mixture of sweat and insect repellent. Look at them, he exclaimed in a voice choked with emotion. They're my friends, my countrymen, my comrades in arms. A fellow never had a better bunch of buddies. Do you think I'd do a single thing to harm them if I didn't have to? Haven't I got enough on my mind? Can't no, you No, 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 not you, no, no to this. Do you think I'd do a single thing to harm them if I didn't have to? Mm -hmm. It's that little qualifier right at the end. Far out. <laughs> Haven't I got enough on my mind? Can't you see how upset I am already about all that cotton piling up on those piers in Egypt? Milo's voice splintered into fragments, and he clutched at Yasserian's shirt front as though drowning. His eyes were throbbing visibly like brown caterpillars. Yasserian, what am I going to do with so much cotton? It's all your fault for letting me buy it. The cotton was piling up on the piers in Egypt, and nobody wanted any. Milo had never dreamed that the Nile Valley could be so fertile or that there would be no market at all for the crop he had bought. 
The mess halls in his syndicate would not help. They rose up in uncompromising rebellion against his proposal to tax them on a per capita basis in order to enable each man to own his own share of the Egyptian cotton crop. Even his reliable friends the Germans failed him in this crisis. They preferred ersatz. Milo's mess halls would not even help him store the cotton, and his warehousing costs skyrocketed and contributed to the devastating drain upon his cash reserves. The profits from the Orvieto mission were sucked away. He began writing home for the money he had sent back in better days. Soon that was almost gone, and new bales of cotton kept arriving on the wharves at Alexandria every day. Each time he succeeded in dumping some on the world market for a loss, it was snapped up by canny Egyptian brokers in the Levant, who sold it back to him at the original price, so that he was really worse off than before. M&M Enterprises verged on collapse. Milo cursed himself hourly for his monumental greed and stupidity in purchasing the entire Egyptian cotton crop, but a contract was a contract and had to be honored, and one night, after a sumptuous evening meal, all Milo's fighters and bombers took off, joined in formation directly overhead, and began dropping bombs on the group. He had landed another contract with the Germans, this time to bomb his own outfit. Milo's planes separated in a well-coordinated attack and bombed the fuel stocks and the ordnance dump. The repair hangars and the B-25 bombers resting on the lollipop-shaped hardstands at the field. His crews spared the landing strip and the mess hall so that they could land safely when their work was done and enjoy a hot snack before retiring. They bombed with their landing lights on, since no one was shooting back. They bombed all four squadrons, the officers club and the group headquarters building. Men bolted from their tents in sheer terror and did not know in which direction to turn. Wounded soon lay screaming everywhere. A cluster of fragmentation bombs exploded in the yard of the officer's club and punched jagged holes in the side of the wooden building and in the bellies and backs of a row of lieutenants and captains standing at the bar. They doubled over in agony and dropped. The rest of the officers fled towards the two exits in panic and jammed up the doorways like a dense, howling dam of human flesh as they shrank from going farther. Colonel Cathcart clawed and elbowed his way through the unruly, bewildered mass until he stood outside by himself. He stared up at the sky in stark astonishment and horror. Milo's planes ballooned serenely in over the blossoming treetops with their bomb bay doors open and wing flaps down and with their monstrous, bug-eyed, blinding, fiercely flickering, eerie landing lights on, were the most apocalyptic sight he had ever beheld. Colonel Cathcart let go a stricken gasp of dismay and hurled himself headlong into his jeep, almost sobbing. He found the gas pedal and the ignition and sped toward the airfield as fast as the rocking car would carry him his huge flabby hands clenched and bloodless on the wheel or blaring his horn tormentedly. Once he almost killed himself when he swerved with a banshee screech of tires to avoid plowing into a bunch of men running crazily toward the hills in their underwear with their stunned faces down and their thin arms pressed high around their temples as puny shields. Yellow, orange, and red fires were burning on both sides of the road. Tents and trees were in flames, and Milo's planes kept coming around interminably with their blinking white landing lights on and their bomb bay doors open. Colonel Cathcart almost turned the jeep over when he slammed the brakes on at the control tower. He leaped from the car while it was still skidding dangerously and hurtled up the flight of stairs inside where three men were busy at the instruments and the controls. 
he bowled two of them aside in his lunge for the nickel-plated microphone, his eyes glittering wildly and his beefy face contorted with stress. He squeezed the microphone in a bestial grip and began shouting hysterically at the top of his voice, Milo, you son of a bitch! Are you crazy? What the hell are you doing? Come down! Come down! Stop hollering so much, will you? answered Milo, who was standing there right beside him in the control tower with a microphone of his own. I'm right here. Milo looked at him with reproof and turned back to his orc. Very good, men. Very good, he chanted into his microphone. But I see one supply shed still standing. That will never do, Purvis. I've spoken to you about that kind of shoddy work before. Now you go right back there this minute and try it again. And this time, come in slowly. Slowly. Haste makes waste, Purvis. Haste makes waste. If I've told you that once, I must have told you that a hundred times. Haste makes waste. The loudspeaker overhead began squawking. Milo, this is Alvin Brown. I have finished dropping my bombs. What should I do now? Strafe, said Milo. Strafe? Alvin Brown was shocked. We have no choice, Milo informed him resignedly. It's in the contract. No, oh, okay then, Alvin Brown acquiesced. In that case, I'll strafe. This time, Milo had gone too far. Bombing his own men and planes were more than even the most phlegmatic observer could stomach, and it looked like the end for him. High-ranking government officials poured in to investigate. Newspapers invade against Milo with glaring headlines, and congressmen denounced the atrocity in stentorian wrath and clamored for punishment. Mothers with children in the service organized into militant groups and demanded revenge. Not one voice was raised in his defense. Decent people everywhere were affronted and Milo was all washed up until he opened his books to the public and disclosed the tremendous profit he had made. He could reimburse the government for all the people and property he had destroyed and still have enough money left over to continue buying Egyptian cotton. Everybody, of course, owned a share, and the sweetest part of the whole deal was that there was really no need to reimburse the government at all. In a democracy, the government is the people, Milo explained. We're people, aren't we? So we might as well just keep the money and eliminate the middleman. Frankly, I'd like to see the government get out of war altogether and leave the whole field to private industry. If we pay the government everything we owe it, we'll only be encouraging government control and discouraging other individuals from bombing their own men and planes. We'll be taking away their incentive. <laughs> Milo was correct, of course, as everyone soon agreed, but a few embittered misfits like Dr. Nika who sulked cantankerously and muttered offensive insinuations about the morality of the whole venture until Milo mollified him with a donation. In the name of the syndicate of a lightweight aluminum collapsible garden chair that Doc Danica could fold up conveniently and carry outside his tent each time Chief White Halfout came inside his tent and carry back inside his tent each time Chief White Halfout came out. Doc Danica had lost his head during Milo's bombardment Instead of running for cover, he had remained out in the open and performed his duty, slithering along the ground through shrapnel strafing and incendiary bombs like a furtive, wily lizard from casualty to casualty, administering tourniquets, morphine, splints, and sulfonilamide with a dark and doleful visage, never saying one word more than he had to and reading in each man's blooming wound a dreadful portent of his own decay. He worked himself relentlessly into exhaustion before the long night was over and came down with a stiffle the next day that sent him hurrying querulously into the medical tent to have his temperature taken by Gus and Wes and to obtain a mustard plaster and vaporizer. 
Dr. Nika attended each moaning man that night with the same glum and profound introverted grief he showed at the airfield the day of the Avignon mission when Yasserian climbed down the few steps of his plane naked in a state of utter shock, with Snowden smeared abundantly all over his bare heels and toes, knees, arms, and fingers, and pointed inside wordlessly toward where the young radio gunner lay freezing to death on the floor beside the still younger tail gunner, who kept falling back into a dead faint each time he opened his eyes and saw Snowden dying. Mm. And so that's where so that's where he started, I think, not refusing to wear clothes. Because, mm. yeah. Doc Nika draped a blanket around Yusserian's shoulders almost tenderly after Snowden had been removed from the plane and carried into an ambulance on a stretcher. He led Yusserian toward his jeep. McWatt helped, and the three drove in silence to the squadron medical tent, where McWatt and Doc Nika guided Yusserian inside to a chair and washed Snowden off him with cold, wet balls of absorbent cotton. Dr. Nika gave him a pill and a shot that put him to sleep for 12 hours. When Yasserian woke up and went to see him, Dr. Nika gave him another pill and a shot that put him to sleep for another 12 hours. When Yasserian woke up again and went to see him, Dr. Nika made ready to give him another pill and a shot. How long are you going to keep giving me these pills and shots, Yasserian asked him, until you feel better. I feel all right now. Doc Danica's frail, suntan forehead furrowed with surprise. Then why don't you put some clothes on? Why are you walking around naked? I don't want to wear a uniform anymore. Doc Danica accepted the explanation and put away his hypodermic syringe. Are you sure you feel all right? I feel fine. I'm just a little logy from all those pills and shots you've been giving me. Yasserian went about his business with no clothes on for all the rest of that day and was still naked late the next morning when Milo, after hunting everywhere else, finally found him sitting up a tree a small distance in back of the quaint little military cemetery at which Snowden was being buried. Milo was dressed in his customary business attire, olive drab trousers, a fresh olive drab shirt and tie, with one silver first lieutenant's bar gleaming on the collar, and a regulation dress cap with a stiff leather bill. I've been looking all over for you, Milo called up to Yasserian from the ground reproachfully. You should have looked for me in this tree, Yasserian answered. I've been up here all morning. Come on down and taste this and tell me if it's good. It's very important. Yasserian shook his head. He sat nude on the lowest limb of the tree and balanced himself with both hands grasping the bough directly above. He refused to budge, and Milo had no choice but to stretch both arms about the trunk in a distasteful hug and start climbing. He struggled upward clumsily with loud grunts and wheezes, and his clothes were squashed and crooked by the time he pulled himself up high enough to hook a leg over the limb and pause for breath. His dress cap was askew and in danger of falling. Milo caught it just in time when it began slipping. Globules of perspiration glistened like transparent pearls around his mustache and swelled like opaque blisters under his eyes. Yasserian watched him impassively. Cautiously, Milo worked himself around in a half-circle so that he could face Yasserian. He unwrapped tissue paper from something soft, round, and brown and handed it to Yasserian. Please taste this and let me know what you think. I'd like to serve it to the men. What is it? asked Yasserian and took a big bite. Chocolate-covered cotton. Oh, jeez. Yasserian gagged convulsively and sprayed his big mouthful of chocolate-covered cotton right into Milo's face. Here, take it back, he spouted angrily. 
Jesus Christ, have you gone crazy? You didn't even take the goddamn seeds out. Give it a chance, will you, Milo begged? It can't be that bad. Is it really that bad? It's even worse, but I've got to make the mess halls feed it to the men. They'll never be able to swallow it. They've got to swallow it, Milo ordained with dictatorial grandeur, and almost broke his neck when he let go with one arm to wave a righteous finger in the air. Come on out here, Ysarian invited him. You'll be much safer, and you can see everything. Gripping the bow above with both hands, Milo began inching his way out on the limb sideways with utmost care and apprehension. His face was rigid with tension, and he sighed with relief when he found himself seated securely beside Ysarian. He stroked the tree affectionately. This is a pretty good tree, he observed admiringly with proprietary gratitude. It's the tree of life, Ysarian answered, waggling his toes, and of knowledge of good and evil too. Milo squinted closely at the bark and branches. No, it isn't, he replied. It's a chestnut tree. Why, I don't know. I sell chestnuts. Have it your way. They sat in the tree without talking for several seconds, their legs dangling and their hands almost straight up on the bough above, the one completely nude but for a pair of crepe-soled sandals, the other completely dressed in a coarse olive-drab woolen uniform with his tie knotted tight. Milo studied Yesarian diffidently through the corner of his eyes, hesitating tactfully. I want to ask you something, he said at last. You don't have any clothes on. I don't want to butt in or anything, but I just want to know. Why aren't you wearing your uniform? I don't want to. Milo nodded rapidly like a sparrow pecking. I see, I see, he stated quickly with a look of vivid confusion. I understand perfectly. I heard Appleby and Captain Black say you had gone crazy, and I just wanted to find out. He hesitated politely again, weighing his next question. Aren't you ever going to put your uniform on again? I don't think so. Milo nodded with spurious vim to indicate he still understood, and then sat silent, ruminating gravely with troubled misgiving. A scarlet-crested bird shot by below, brushing sure dark wings against a quivering bush. Ysarian and Milo were covered in their bower by tissue-thin tiers of sloping green and largely surrounded by other gray chestnut trees and a silver spruce. The sun was high overhead in a vast sapphire blue sky beaded with low isolated puffy clouds of dry and immaculate white. There was no breeze and the leaves about them hung motionless. The shade was feathery. Everything was at peace but Milo, who straightened suddenly with a muffled cry and began pointing excitedly. Look at that, he exclaimed in alarm. Look at that. There's a funeral going on down there. That looks like the cemetery, isn't it? Isarian answered him slowly in a level voice. They're burying that kid who got killed in my plane over Afghanon the other day. Snowden. What happened to him? Milo asked in a voice deadened with awe. He got killed. That's terrible, Milo grieved, and his large brown eyes filled with tears. That poor kid. It really is terrible. He bit his trembling lip hard, and his voice rose with emotion when he continued. And it will get even worse if the mess halls don't agree to buy my cotton, Ysarian. What's the matter with them? Don't they realize it's their syndicate? Don't they know they've all got a share? Did the dead man in my tent have a share? Ysarian demanded caustically. Of course he did, Milo assured him lavishly. Everybody in the squadron has a share. He was killed before he even got into the squadron. Milo made a deft grimace of tribulation and turned away. I wish you'd stop picking on me about that dead man in your tent, he pleaded peevishly. I told you I didn't have anything to do with killing him. 
Is it my fault that I saw this great opportunity to corner the market on Egyptian cotton and got us all into this trouble? Was I supposed to know there was going to be a glut? I didn't even know what a glut was in those days. An opportunity to corner a market doesn't come along very often, and I was pretty shrewd to grab the chance when I had it. Milo gulped back a moan as he saw six uniformed pallbearers lift the plain pine coffin from the ambulance and set it gently down on the ground beside the yawning gash of the freshly dug grave. And now I can't get rid of a single penny's worth, he mourned. Yesarian was unmoved by the Faustian charade of burial ceremony and by Milo's crushing bereavement. The chaplain's voice floated up to him through the distance tenuously in an unintelligible, almost inaudible monotone, like a gaseous murmur. Yesarian could make out Major Major by his towering and lanky aloofness, and thought he recognized Major Danby mopping his brow with a handkerchief. Major Danby had not stopped shaking since his run-in with General Dreedle. There were strands of enlisted men molded in a curve around the three officers, as inflexible as lumps of wood, and four idle gravediggers in street fatigues lounging indifferently on spades near the shocking, incongruous heap of loose copper-red earth. As Yesarian stared, the chaplain elevated his gaze toward Yesarian beatifically, pressed his fingers down over his eyeballs in a manner of affliction, peered upward again toward Yesarian searchingly, and bowed his head, concluding what Yesarian took to be a climactic part of the funeral rite. Point in order, that was, remember how the chaplain's like, I saw a naked man in a tree. I couldn't have seen a naked man in a tree. That couldn't have been real. <laughs> The four men in fatigues lifted the coffin on slings and lowered it into the grave. Milo shuddered violently. I can't watch it, he cried, turning away in anguish. I can't just sit here and watch while these mess halls let my syndicate die. He gnashed his teeth and shook his head with bitter woe and resentment. If they had any loyalty, they would buy my cotton till it hurts so that they can keep right on buying my cotton till it hurts them some more. They would build fires and burn up their underwear and summer uniforms just to create bigger demand. But they won't do a thing, Yesarian. Try eating the rest of this chocolate-covered cotton for me. Maybe it will taste delicious now. Yesarian pushed his hand away. Give up, Milo. People can't eat cotton. Milo's face narrowed cunningly. It isn't really cotton, he coaxed. I was joking. It's really cotton candy. Delicious cotton candy. Try it and see. Now you're lying. I never lie, Milo rejoined with proud dignity. You're lying now. I only lie when it's necessary, Milo explained defensively, averting his eyes for a moment and blinking his lashes winningly. This stuff is better than cotton candy, really it is. It's made out of real cotton, Yesarian. You've got to help me make the men eat it. Egyptian cotton is the finest cotton in the world. But it's indigestible, Yesarian emphasized. It will make them sick, don't you understand? Why don't you try living on it yourself if you don't believe me? I did try, admitted Milo gloomily, and it made me sick. The graveyard was yellow as hay and green as cooked cabbage. In a little while, the chaplain stepped back, and the beige crescent of human forms began to break up sluggishly, like flotsam. The men drifted without haste or sound to the vehicles parked along the side of the bumpy dirt road. With their heads down disconsolately, the chaplain, Major Major, and Major Danby moved toward their jeeps in an ostracized group, each holding himself friendlessly several feet away from the other two. It's all over, observed Yesarian. It's the end, Milo agreed despondently. There's no hope left, and all because I left them free to make their own decisions. That should teach me a lesson about discipline the next time I try something like this. 
Why don't you sell your cotton to the government? Yasarian suggested casually as he watched the four men in street fatigues shoveling, heaping bladefuls of the copper-red earth back down inside the grave. Milo vetoed the idea brusquely. It's a matter of principle, he exclaimed firmly. The government has no business in business. I would be the last person in the world to ever try to involve the government in a business of mine. But the business of government is business, he remembered alertly in continued relation. Calvin Coolidge said that, and Calvin Coolidge was a president, so it must be true. And the government does have the responsibility of buying all the Egyptian cotton I've got that no one else wants so that I can make a profit, doesn't it? Milo's face clouded almost as abruptly, and his spirits descended into a state of sad anxiety. But how will I get the government to do it? Bribe it, Yasarian said. Bribe it? Milo was outraged and almost lost his balance and broke his neck again. Shame on you, he scolded severely, breathing virtuous fire down and upward into his rusty mustache through his billowing nostrils and prim lips. Bribery is against the law, and you know it. But it's not against the law to make a profit, is it? So it can't be against the law for me to bribe someone in order to make a fair profit, can it? No, of course not. He fell to brooding again with a meek, almost pitiable distress. But how will I know who to bribe? Oh, don't you worry about that, Yasarian comforted him with a toneless snicker as the engines of the jeeps and ambulances fractured the drowsy silence and the vehicles in the rear began driving away backward. You make the bribe big enough and they'll find you. Just make sure you do everything right out in the open. Let everyone know exactly what you want and how much you're willing to pay for it. The first time you act guilty or ashamed, you might get into trouble. I wish you'd come with me, Milo remarked. I won't feel safe among people who take bribes. They're no better than a bunch of crooks. You'll be all right, Yasarian assured him with confidence. If you run into trouble, just tell everybody that the security of the country requires a strong domestic Egyptian cotton speculating industry. It does, Milo informed him solemnly. A strong Egyptian cotton speculating industry means a much stronger America. Of course it does. And if that doesn't work, point out the great number of American families that depend on it for income. A great many American families do depend on it for income. You see, said Yasarian, you're much better at it than I am. You all must make it sound true. It is true, Milo exclaimed with a strong trace of old hot hair. That's what I mean. You do it with just the right amount of conviction. You're sure you won't come with me? Yasarian shook his head. Milo was impatient to get started. He stuffed the remainder of the chocolate-covered cotton ball into a shirt pocket and edged his way back gingerly along the branch to the smooth gray trunk. He threw his arms about the trunk in a generous and awkward embrace and began shinnying down, the sides of his leather-soled shoes slipping constantly so that it seemed many times he would fall and injure himself. Halfway down, he changed his mind and climbed back up. Bits of tree bark stuck to his mustache, and his straining face was flushed with exertion. I wish you'd put your uniform on instead of going around naked that way, he confided pensively before he climbed back down again and hurried away. You might start a trend, and then I'll never get rid of all this gold darn cotton. So, yeah, <clears throat> Milo's... Ugh. You know so the he... thing about him, though? Yeah. I think... Uh, sincere is the wrong word, but I think... Just like in that last bit with Gusserian, I think it takes almost nothing for him to convince himself he's telling the truth. He believes his own not. hype. Mm. He believes his own hype, yeah. He's uh, he's been obviously trained in the concept of uh, the purest form of, I guess, capitalism. But, but I, have, I have heard it said that 
The thing about pathologic liars that make them so dangerous is they convince themselves they're telling the truth. Yep. Uh, and he's definitely... It's interesting that Yossarian was being snide and he took it literally. Mm. And Yossarian's definitely... I think that the combination of all these different events, but particularly Avignon definitely seems to be the, the breaking point. Yeah. I think that's where he's been broken completely. And... um. What about uh, Milo bombing the uh, the airfield? I just I can't. And the fact that he got into huge trouble until he showed everyone that he had profits. Mm-hmm. And because everyone has a share. Yep. And it's just an incredibly... It's the extreme concept of capitalism. That's what mm. that is. It's almost, I mean, it's obviously exaggerated for satirical purposes, but where we are in our day and age, it doesn't seem satirical at all. Yeah, the idea of, yeah, the fact that we have, we have, uh, what's it called, mercenaries and all that, like it's Mm -hmm. that private companies are, like the government outsources to private companies and stuff. Yep. It's, oh, it's painful to read. It's painful to, to hear and read. Like, just, oof. Oof is the word. Dr. Nika, I think, also Avignon was a point for him. Mm, he he um he actually did his job. Well, he's trapped within so, the sorry, system. Sorry, not not in Avignon. He did his job when Milo is bombing me the, the airfield. No, but he did it also Avignon. Avignon yeah, yeah. was the time where he he saw the impact it had on Viserion. Mm. And I think it's it's definitely I, I I don't know. There's probably more to it as well, but that seems to be the moment where he literally acted like it's 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 still an introspective grief. It's, it's saying like he is thinking about his own mortality. Yeah, that's how he relates to the the suffering and the mortality he sees. But he actually, within the system that he had, he's tried to do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Tried to help others, which is you know, and huge. I mean. You know, we got a little more about Yusaria and obviously Snowden was just bleeding all over his uniform. And he's like, I'll never get these. My guess is he's like, I'll never get these stains off. I'm not wearing a uniform again. It just, it, I think it's the, a little bit of the, you know, Macbeth's wife, Lady Macbeth, the whole mm-hmm. idea of our damn spot and that, that idea of not being able to cope. And, and maybe also the idea, well, if I'm not wearing a uniform, they can't ask me to go on missions because I'm well, not part of the maybe. military. I think it's more the guilt because remember, he had guilt that Orr, no, was it Orr? Who was the co-pilot? It wasn't Orr. It was D. Dobbs? Dobbs, yeah. He had he knew that Dobbs wasn't quite with it. Mm. That Dobbs wanted to kill Colonel Cathcart. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Or was that he, McWatt? No, not McWatt. He, Dobbs wanted to kill everyone. Like, he started with Colonel Cathcart mm. and said, help me kill him. And then that is like, oh, and then we, I, I want to kill this person and this person and this person. Expanded. He's like, no, I like McWatt. Like, what are you doing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. But basically, he knew, Yossarian knew that, that Dobbs was not acting in a way that was safe. Mm-hmm. And it was his, technically it's his responsibility if he is still, if he is meant to be the flight commander, if he, I think he is, he was the one mm. who was in charge of that flight. It was his responsibility to get Danica to ground him, but Danica wouldn't have been able to ground him because mm-hmm. of Catch-22. And because of the way that Danica explained Catch-22 to uh, Yasarian, 
assuming the chronology stacks mm-hmm. up. He's understood that you can't do that. You can't get, you can't, if you say that he's not well, but the guy says he's fine. Yeah. It doesn't work. And the whole reason everything has come about is because the number of, of number of missions has also gone up. Yep. Because it all comes back down to that and it's broken, it's breaking people. I'm wondering if as we go through the book, we find out that Yossarian planted that idea of increasing the number of missions. Oh. I don't know, but I have this feeling because the way that Yossarian is acting, he says things like he's thinking out loud or he's like like sarcastic thoughts, like he lets them out. But everyone around him seems to take him seriously. Yeah. They either take him seriously or they think, oh, actually, that's a really good idea because they're, they're looking at it from a purely unethical, self-serving lens. They're not seeing fellow human beings. They're seeing cannon fodder. Whereas Ysarian, unlike a lot of the other characters, Ysarian and Dunbar actually see fellow people, which is, I mean, within limits. Like, they have to switch it on and off. They compartmentalize, that's for sure. But they actually see people. They see death as a real thing. Yeah. I don't think Arfi, for example, unless he is literally injured and dying, he's not going to grasp the concept that he is actually in a state where he is at risk as well. Hmm. He, for example, like the, there's this this disconnect between the reality that they are in, and their their think their thought of they're completely, well, yeah, people die, but it's not going to be me. That kind of mindset. Which honestly, unfortunately, we are we are increasingly seeing seeing evidence that people think like that. Yeah, they they don't think it could happen to them with their family or their loved ones because there's that exceptionalism and and I mean there's a whole I'm not going to go into it but I know there's a lot of studies into um, exceptionalism and and this thought of and that part of it is comes from education systems that basically teach you that there is uh, that simply by your nationality or your ethnicity or your education or whatever that makes you superior and therefore an exception from the realities that others go through anyway but that's a whole mm. that's a whole topic in itself but yeah interesting milo made the death of another person the grief about his syndicate yep. notice he said i should be able to profit he didn't say the syndicate should be able to profit because everyone profits I, there's no law against me profiting. Yeah, he's um very single-minded. And very, very much it's all about him making the profit because he's part of the syndicate. I mean, he's saying the middleman, he was saying, cut it, well, I, I, if I, even if I pay back the government, the cost of the people and the property damage will still have a massive profit. And we might as well cut out the government since the government is a democ- in a democracy is the people and we are the people, syndicate's the people, so therefore think. So the next logical step from that is, well, the syndicate is here for everyone and I am one of the people who's everyone and I'm one of the people, so it should benefit me. Yep. It doesn't, it's it's a very easy series of, of uh, logical sequence of thought for this. And, and we, we've talked about it before, but the only real reason the syndicate's there is to shield him from consequences. Yes, yes. But he also genuinely believes that syndicate is for, the, for everyone to have profit. Well, no, the syndicate is good if the syndicate profits. Because everyone has a share in the syndicate, so it's good for the, for for everyone if the syndicate is doing well. But he's the one who runs the syndicate. Yep. And it, there there was a lot more explanation about that early on about the um, 
You know, like he had that one commander who wouldn't play ball. So suddenly he got General Peckham to send him to uh, the Solomon Islands to dig graves. And yeah, um, suddenly he got the Germans on board and he had some German uh, planes with him. And then he got grounded by MPs. And before they could turn around, suddenly the planes are being all the swastikas are being painted over by his um, company logo now. Yeah. It's just it's it's. I kind of, I, there's going to be a warning, basically, like extreme greed, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if you took greed and, and av- like, it's so painful. Well, and, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm worried with Yasarian is, it's almost like awe-inspiring just the level of yeah. thought that when, you know, Yasarian thinks Milo is a genius. I don't know if I want to go that far because... That, that that genius has been used for such a nefarious purpose, but yeah, yeah. Look, there's a, there's a the evil genius. I'm sure there's, that's the the description. I mean, even Yasarian is is. I said there was an expression where you can tell that there is a morality that's involved in Yasarian's way of seeing. It's interesting that he made a reference to the tree of knowledge or the tree of life. And he's talking to Milo and he's referring to the tree of, of life and, and that's good good and evil and knowledge. and Yeah, it's, I think sometimes Yossarian lets things slip. I think he's a lot more concerned with morality and ethics and that he, than he lets on, but to survive. And because he's, had to, he's survived his way to the, the hosp- the, in the hospital situation by bluffing and pretending to be a dead person, or a dying person and and i don't know there's something about him that he's he he is the self-serving that he has is that he wants to survive mm. but the way that he wants to survive is not i think he has a, a a limit well we we know he wants to get hungry joe out of there yeah so he it's not that he he wants to survive it but the reason he wants to get hungry joe out there is out of there is presumably because he's putting everyone else at risk well i i think it could be, but I get the sense that, you know, out of everyone here, he's the most not well and he needs to yeah. leave. Yes. And maybe think, maybe you're right. Maybe it is because he's a liability. Although I think part of it, that, that's the, how he phrased it or he framed it, that he needs to stop flying. But I think also he does feel sympathy and empathy for him as well. I think, yeah, I'm with you. I think there's something about Yossarian that is, it's not that he's, it's not, I wouldn't call him a likable character. He's, he's not a likable character, but you can see why he is the way he is. Mm. And he, he's, he's not, he's not an Arfi and he's, who is just a man made of red flags. He is not Milo, who is a person that essentially doesn't exist. He, he, he is what he convinces himself to be. Yeah, he's he's definitely becoming one of the more villainous characters in this book. Oh, he's yeah, nasty. He's not Cathcart, who is just ambitious but lacks the, <laughs> lacks the skills, so to speak. Yeah, he's not Corn, who is also ambitious but also lacks the skills in a different way. He's not the controlling Colonel. Poor Major Danby, who's been wrecked. Yeah, and. Uh, major major who is also it's interesting these are definitely interesting characters and i don't want to i want to watch the series um, because it's going to probably make more sense in the in terms of chronological order well i mean we're in the back half of the book now yeah Yeah. so yes uh, and next chapter we're going to get more on the chaplain we're going back back to to the chaplain Uh, i mean yeah 
It's funny. There were a lot of just little callbacks to like previous information in this chapter. I think there's a little bit here is that arguably Yossarian is responsible for planting the head in Milo's head that the government owes him or sh should be responsible for the cotton. I mean, that's not what Yossarian said, but that's how Milo took it away. Yeah, and... Which God, him, would have him. led to him being okay with having a contract against... Oh, yeah. Um, man, also him trying to get the men to eat cotton. Oh. And Yossarian's even, oh, you didn't even take the seeds out. <laughs> yeah. There's so many layers to it, but it does. it seems it's gone backwards and forwards and backwards... It's it, the structure of this chapter is interesting because it's 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 going back and back and back and back and then it's explaining like the consequences and the little bits that tie together. You know um, that, that idea that once we get um, something enters our lives, suddenly we see it everywhere. You know, you buy a green car and suddenly you notice how there's green yep. cars everywhere on the road. Uh, just the way our brains work. I must admit, since we started reading Catch-22, like especially browsing on Reddit, I've seen people talk about the book. Non it seems like people are discussing it nonstop. <laughs> it's, I think it's also relevant though right now. I think mm -hmm. it's another thing because it's discussing one of the topics that he has brought up as far as i can see based on what we've been reading is that idea of either blind confidence in your immortality or justification or for all the, the, the all of them they're very extreme points of view mm. they're all extreme points of view it's all about getting ahead advancing surviving doing your duty doing the right thing being there as a patriot, being there as being in a space so you can express you, because you just want to kill people, have a mm. mind. All these extreme traits, and it's it's fascinating and terrifying. But that's currently where we're at, I think, as well as as we see in our general dialogue in the world. It's all extremes, and we we fraction, and we we as opposed to looking for the connection like the fact that Yossarian is thinking about I mean yes it's about his own survival but he's like he actually there there is something about one like the fact that he tried to call Milo it's like how could you do this to your fellow people like why would you hurt your own like you mm -hmm. can't deal with the Germans you can't do this and Milo's not wrong in the sense of, like, at the end of the day, these are just people who are doing what their government is telling them to do, but the people themselves are not the enemy. Yeah, but... You know, you were the one that agreed to a bonus for every American shot out of the sky. Yes, there's a difference between making a profit off the suffering of your fellow... And whether he was making a profit off the suffering of Germans or whether he was making a profit off the suffering of his fellow... Uh, so, like his countrymen makes should make no difference either way it's profiteering from war which i think that probably is the charge that he could face if they if they do actually look past the profits um and look at the person as opposed to the syndicate so yeah well, well yeah in a very um cut and dry way he is profiting from war he is a war profiteer yeah yeah and 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 the thing is that I can see why people look at these things and are returning to books like Catch-22 because it is something that we need to ask ourselves is like, what's of greater importance? Our material 
we all go, well, the economy, the economy, the economy. Yes, the economy affects how people earn and live and the quality of life and all that. But how is that different to Milo turning around saying, well, it's syndicate, everyone has a share in the syndicate, everyone is affected by the syndicate, if the syndicate yep. is all good. What's the difference? What's the difference? So, yes. I, I think the difference is uh, in the economy, there are more people profiting than just Milo. Yes, but I mean, not not, not, going, not the people doing yeah. all the work, just there, there are more people at the top than that one person. Yes, but arguably also the others are profiting because they get their lifestyle, like they get the nice food and the mess and they get this. No, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just talking. And, oh, yeah, yeah, never, no, in, but even, no, but even in our economy now, like it's the, the, it, in, for example, the current global crisis that we are still going through that has not stopped despite the fact that, anyway. It, it's to, the to, largest wealth transfer in history. Yes, yes. So there's all sorts of things we have to start. And I think that's probably why you're seeing it everywhere. It's because these are relevant concepts that we need to discuss. And it's not necessarily that we need to go, right, it's the right thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. It's like, so we need to actually look at these things from a, well, what are the values here? What values are are going on? What are we valuing here when we when we need to keep an economy running at all costs? At all costs? Well, look, the potential profit outweighs the, the losses of life and whatever. Really? How are you valuing a human life? The fact that we can value a human life with dollars and cents is obnoxious to me personally. Yeah. I get a- it, but it's obnoxious. Yeah. I- so, but, but that's the thing. Like, that's why, again, the reason you're seeing it, it makes sense to me because these so are actually topics that are coming up. Yeah. See, I don't even get it just because, like, every, like, study we've done shows that, you know, you pay people more, you give them more downtime, it will increase profits. But basically, the current model is to wring everything out of everyone all the time, even though in the long run, it's worse off, even for that, that motivation of profit. It's because of the perspective. If you only look at the short term, then that's all you will work towards. But if you look at it with a longer vision and a longer reaching vision, then you actually consider the actions in the short term and their implications for the long term. And you have a, a slower, maybe sometimes a slower growth, but a slow and steady kind of change that, however, is aiming towards a concrete direction versus immediate, rapid, fast. Like th- there's the, the fast food mentality versus the long-term sustainable ongoing journey. A really good example that um, I haven't really talked about on the podcast, but there is a concept uh, that's endemic to the games industry, and I think a lot of tech industries, I know it's definitely a problem in the animation and visual effects industry of crunch. It's basically project mismanagement. So in order to Mm -hmm. get the thing out on time, as I make air quotes, uh, all all the people basically have to work, you know, 12, 14, 20 hour days for weeks upon months on end, completely burn out, Mm -hmm. uh, affect their health just to get this in the times. And a lot of time, see, it results in good movies, good games, but you know, there was a tweet the other day I saw, like, all those great games that were made with Crunch. Imagine how much better they could have been if there was, like, a healthy work-life balance, if there, if people were paid what they were worth, if there was better what? management. Because anytime Crunch happens, it is a failure of management and project also, management. Who, who decides the worth? Who decides the remuneration? Who decides? So it's, yeah, I agree. It's, it's yeah. 
There's so ba- ba- much. Basically, uh, actually, I thought about that the other day when um, uh, that that book I think I mentioned not last time, not time before Hidden Valley Road about the family who had uh, six out of twelve children suffered from schizophrenia, and uh, mm. a lot of like the tissue samples and monitoring them over the years led to a lot of breakthroughs regarding the illness. And the final chapter, the the last child in that family has had children herself, and you know. She was basically, when the children were very young, she was basically panicking, watching any warning sign that her own children might be affected. Yes. And and there were a couple of warning signs in both children. But, you know, based on uh, her finances and also catching this stuff early, she was able to get them, you know, in therapy or learn how to meditate. Basically, she had the resources to uh, eventually her ch- children both excelled and flourished and went into, you know, made a, a positive benefit to society. Um, mm. That's kind of the end of the book. Her daughter now suddenly is joining one of the um, teams uh, that have been researching the tissue samples of her family. Mm-hmm. Um, and and she's, she, the, the lady mentions it in this chapter, and it just hit me, you know, like, imagine if every child was able to have the resources to allow them to, you know, regulate their behavior or to learn coping strategies for any problem that might have, like how much, how much benefit to humanity through the arts and sciences and everything else are we denying ourselves by the way we Mm. do things? That's what hit me with reading the end of that book. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, no, it's just, uh... We we need to I think just take a, a reevaluate things and that's what we can do as individuals. But if we don't also evaluate the systems that we're in, you know involved in and, and try and see like what is it that we need to live by in terms of um, stru- how we want to restructure things, it's it's easy to just go okay, let's just grab this philosophy that is based on. This idea of uh, it's all about the hegemony. It's all about the hegemony. It's all about power and imbalance and da da da. Again, well, it's more. There's more to it. Like, I think we need to look at things with a lot more depth and layer it out and actually think of what we can do. And and um, as our common theme that I keep repeating is, it's all about the individual and collective change and addressing these things and not going thinking about things as, as a part of it trying to actually apply those things in our everyday life with how we interact and and act. And it doesn't matter if you have a position where you have a position of influence, be you a policy writer or whatever, that's one way to have influence. But even just you don't know who you're interacting with in the world and whether that has an impact somewhere else. So I guess, you know, don't be a Milo is I think the short version (laughs) of today's thing. Like, my gosh. Don't be Milo. Don't be Milo. Or Arfie. Or Arfie. Wow. Or Captain Black or Colonel Cathcart. Or Captain Black. Yeah, there's some really rough characters in this. Yes. So. Yeah, well, we hope you did enjoy this episode. The music at the top of the podcast was Soap Runs by Gregson Williams and Henry Gregson Williams. It was from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. The music at the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rue McMoo. Um, on Twitter, and you can find our podcast at SMBSLT Podcast. That's at Twitter, that's Facebook, and with an at gmail.com. That's also our email. Yeah, uh, please let us know what you uh, 
our thinking about the book, how we're covering the book, the discussions based on the book, any books you'd like to hear us read in the future. We welcome it all. But in the meantime, we hope you are staying safe. We hope you are enjoying your reading and we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you.